Want flexibility? Take yoga. Want flexibility with your health insurance? Check out United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly medical, dental, and vision coverage that may be right for you. More at UH1.com. There is this big space of ungoverned disorder where nothing is being done and we're just kind of holding up our hands and going, well, don't know what we could do. I'm Jason Pack. And I'm Alex Hall-Hall. And we're the hosts of Disorder, a brand new podcast from Goalhanger, where we'll be connecting the dots using our own experiences, as well as talking to people at the forefront of global affairs. All seeking to work out, why are the world powers no longer coordinating as they once did? The trouble is the United States, but also some European societies, are so divided. How did we get here? The modern version of the culture war in which the fight that matters is not the real one. It's about winning certain kinds of arguments online. What can we do to fix it? How do you repair disorder? It's by becoming a community. Search Disorder wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, I'm Stephen. And I'm Helen. And in this week's New Statesman podcast, we discuss whether or not Labour's right to whip its MPs to vote for the second reading of Article 50. Whether or not anyone knows what's going on with Northern Ireland and the border. A noosh reveals who her backbencher of the week is. And you ask us, who let the dogs out? So after a court case... However many speeches, two prime speeches... A million billion speeches in the House of Commons. Yeah, two speeches by the Prime Minister. We are now finally debating whether or not to pull the trigger on Article 50, thus triggering... Wow, we're going to use the word trigger a lot in this episode. I think Um, the important thing is that this is the second reading of the bill. So there is still a committee stage and then a final vote on it. So this is a kind of interesting interim stage. There won't be the vote on this bit until next week. I read your blog and I watched some of the speeches because I apparently don't have enough hobbies. And I could see a lot of people were making the clip that they were then going to put on their Facebook page about what they reckon about Europe. Or some of the older Brexiteers just looked like they were happy to be out of the house. So there were some people who just were taking the opportunity to go, who won, I won, who's the big dog. It was very much Parliament at its worst in the most part, i.e. MPs basically wanting to go, look... I was there, I contributed. Wasn't it a bit worrying, though, how both Nick Clegg and Ed Miliband looked quite foxy? So, I don't know. So I have an unpopular opinion, which is that I feel Nick Clegg has got a lot less attractive with his glasses now. <gasps> that, is the wrong, that is the wrong opinion. I just feel like, you know, with, without them, he was kind of dreamy. And yeah, you sort of imagined him being kind of... You can imagine him being someone like in a David Hare play or one of those like BBC Two dramas and you're like I wish I was cerebral enough to be bothered to watch this but he used to look like that and now he kind of looks like he might be the dad of someone in a a cerebral BBC2 drama yeah I'm not a fan of the glasses okay I will take the glasses but I meant I'm I actually Stephen I wasn't talking about their physical appearance I was talking about their principled opposition to both um, Donald Trump's refugee ban early in the weekend of course article 50 is that the ban voting against triggering article 50 no 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 but he um, he was the one who had a backbench debate about the Donald Trump's refugee ban earlier in the week so he was he was there his hair's done his I think of it as the pigeon shit spot, but it's 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 bigger, but I think it suits him. Well, I think the problem with the 
dab of grey, as some people would call it, was one when you're right in the centre of the chamber. It was the camera was 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 it was almost like it was designed to draw attention to it. Two, as it's got bigger, the fact yeah, I mean he does have wonderful wonderful hair, the volume on that thing, but. Onto the, you know, the weighty matter of, <laughs> yeah, of their um, speeches, yeah. The trouble is, that bit about me talking about Nick Clay's glasses is almost our version of what the MPs were doing, right? Which is that everyone in the whole world would rather do anything but talk about the incredibly grinding minutiae of Brexit. So there's been um, the exiting the EU Select Committee on Wednesday morning uh, had Sundar Katwala of British Future, Jonathan Portis, formerly of NICER, and David Goodhart, another think tanker, uh, talking about immigration and Brexit. And I watched it and I just thought, oh my God, this is so incredibly, incredibly, incredibly complicated. I mean, just, you know, in theoretical situations, like what happens if you have a Polish worker in the Republic of Ireland whose job gets relocated to Northern Ireland, where they will no longer have the automatic right to to work. Or, you know, somebody who lives on one side of the border and works on the other side of the border as an EU citizen. The issue of the border in Ireland, particularly if we leave the customs union, is just a yawning chasm of horror as far as I can see particularly at a time when Martin McGuinness someone with real authority to engage with the peace process has stepped back from frontline politics and I'm not sure anybody's really paying attention to that No, I mean I think so on the upside as far as the border issue is concerned everyone not Downing Street not the Irish Prime Minister not Brussels everyone is reluctant to have a hard border there and everyone is is very keen to protect. However, just because everyone wants to find a way through doesn't mean there necessarily is one, not least because, and one of the things I like about our podcast listeners is one of the, it's the only place I can say this without people making what is obviously a crushingly stupid point. Whenever I go, oh, there's a hard border, people go, but there isn't a hard border between Norway and Sweden, right? And and they there's, there's an EU border. To which I say, I don't know if you've noticed, but neither Norway or Sweden have a constitution set up to mandate power sharing. A border that wouldn't be that hard anywhere else in the world is quite hard indeed if it's uh, between the north and the south. The the best solution is probably you have customs checks at ports as the actual coastline, right? So you have one free movement area where basically the government would kind of just concede then he doesn't think immigration is really a problem, right? At least not a problem where you're suddenly going to have thousands and thousands of poles or whatever coming into our, into the Republic of Ireland, crossing the border and getting on a ferry to Scotland. Yeah, that was uh, the complexity of it is what I, I kind of got from it. And you wrote a piece this week about the final settlement of the divorce bill, which put, was it? would you say it's sort of between 30 and 60 billion in terms of extricating ourselves from obligations that we already have? Yeah, so there are two sort of areas. One is obviously pension liabilities. The second is things we have agreed to pay for, but we are now leaving before the final bill will come in. Some of that is called the RNL, which is basically payments already made on the idea that the EU will continue to exist in the future. And some of it is sort of simple infrastructure spend. So we've agreed to have some roads built by the EU in various parts of the EU, including in Britain. And we're still going to have to pay for those, even though they will be being built long after we've left. The difficulty with the divorce bill, right, one, because of what's happening to the pound, kind of 40 billion euros is getting, that is getting bigger all the time in terms of the actual bill than we'll get to the EU. The upper sort of estimation is 60 billion. The lower end is sort of 30. You'd kind of assume you'd end up at 50, 40. To put that in perspective, we spent about 87 billion pounds on education this year. 
So 60 billion is not a small amount of money. The question is, would that 60 billion be passed as part of the vote on the deal at the end of the process? Would it be paid in installments? And so every finance bill, the government would have a fight with the Brexiteers on the back benches who'd be saying, we don't want to pay this bill. And obviously it's a very trivial element of the horror of the, the Muslim ban. But we've had the government's first go at crisis management this weekend and a generous marker would give that maybe a D. They're gonna you have don't to... get that from a C earlier in the week. Yeah, I, I don't really like giving people bad news, but... Uh, I, it was I, really bad. It, but yeah. One of the things that strikes me about it, and this is an echo of America too, is that kind of Brexit ultras are grumpy and disruptive, and they've been grumpy and disruptive for five years. And that means actually, far from what you think, you know, they don't get anything because they're not willing to work with other people. They actually end up getting quite a lot. And my interest is in where the sort of loyal block of, of the Tory party actually... What reward are they kind of getting for kind of just nodding stuff through that they don't agree with? Obviously, America is a much more extreme example because the Republicans spent eight years of Obama's presidency just basically blocking every appointment they could, not allowing him to appoint a Supreme Court nominee in the last year of his presidency. I mean, with them, it's a kind of part of an anti-government crusade where they just want to prove that government doesn't work by making it not work. But there is a huge incentive in political systems. It's a kind of prisoner's dilemma, right? That you, you know, you're either the other side or your own side in this case. So I was talking about this with one of the conservative dissidents and they said but we know then even if all kind of 40 of that group voted against this they would be more than replaced by labor mps who've been whipped to vote for it and actually to be honest conservative remainers right if they voted against article 50 they kind of feel like when people say that to them they're basically being asked to go over the top well let's talk about jeremy corbyn in that case and briefly dwell on uh, labor and what they've done over there. So Jeremy Corbyn has whipped his MPs in favour of voting for it. Uh, Emily Thornberry's been out saying, you know, we've got to respect the will of the people. Um, this is a democratic mandate. Keir Starmer looked like, you know, someone had just shot a puppy in front of him um, but when he sort of had to say, no, none of us want to be here, but here we are and we'll vote for it. That, to me, I can see the argument for that. I mean, I've been talking to Harriet Harman this week about her new autobiography and one of the things that can continually comes up is her asking Labour to abstain on the welfare bill in 2015, which is one of the things that is often credited for Jeremy Corbyn winning the Labour leadership election because of course he wasn't in the cabinet he was free to vote against at every stage I think it was a pretty compelling argument that she saw some stuff in the bill that she liked she wanted to show herself to be not completely hostile to any kind of changes on welfare because she felt that was out of tune with the country and there's probably a pretty good argument that Jeremy Corbyn is in that same position as well but there are strong incentives aren't there for Labour MPs in very heavily pro-Remain areas to vote against it So I'm going to say something which is going to make me unpopular with precisely 100% of our listeners, which is I sort of think on Article 50 and on the welfare bill, I agree with the case on on, in, in both instances, right? The welfare bill, Harriet wanted to send a signal that Labour had got it on welfare because she was convinced by the case in their post-mortem of the defeat that that was a problem. And then because she was seen as a grandee with nothing to prove, she could concede on it by abstaining on it, and that would create space for the next Labour leader to not have to do that themselves. Ditto with the Labour leadership now. They look at polling showing them that the referendum vote matters more than the general election vote to most people. Yeah, the PLP is haunted by what happened to Labour's Scottish MPs. And of course, Jeremy never really liked the EU anyway. So it all Yeah, for kind him of, it's not a tough decision yeah. to kind of to, to trigger Article 50. And in terms of the conservative dilemma I was talking about before, the reality is if the Labour Party was whipping to vote against Article 50, you would still get 50 rebels 
are in the other direction. So the reality is, in some ways, what Labour does on it is a bit incidental. I think the bigger problem, and what I found immensely annoying about Keir Starmer's like, oh, we don't want to be here, is one, Labour is not going to get credit for anyone as the party of, oh God, this is awful, but we're going to do it anyway. If Brexit goes well, they're not going to get any credit. If it goes badly, there are many other better natural homes for that impulse. I also think the bigger problem is that Article 50 is the whole of the legislature's last chance to meaningfully limit the executive's power as far as not only Brexit, but the powers that will be repatriated from Brussels will mostly not be repatriated to the legislature. They will be repatriated to the prime minister because they are sovereign powers, right? So this is the last chance to go, do you know what? We would quite like Parliament in future to vote on any trade treaties. We are the only legislature in the democratic world that I can think of. If someone can think of an example, it would be very gratefully received, where the legislature does not get to vote on treaties. If they have legal changes, we get to vote on, on those, but we don't get to amend the treaties or veto the treaties on block. We, we have had no discussion about a divorce bill, and no one really knows what we're going to do as far as Northern Ireland is, whether or not it would be better to leave, you know, so there are two things you need to leave, right? There's the EU and there's the EEA. We joined at the same time, obviously, but they actually have two different leaving articles. One thing you might do is if you triggered Article 50 to leave the EU but didn't trigger Article 127 to leave the EEA, then suddenly the UK's leverage over the EU becomes a lot higher because obviously the problem with the EEA from a democratic perspective is it's basically the EU rebranded to make it more acceptable to Norway's political class. But if Britain fell out into the EEA, we'd have all of the benefits of EU membership in terms of single market membership, we wouldn't actually be, there, there would be no separate obligations to pay anything, which suddenly does change the leverage in terms of Britain having a disorderly exit if it can't agree a deal within year, two years' time. There are just huge areas that are not being interrogated at all. The trouble with that is that I think, to, I mean, to me being in the EEA sounds very sensible. I mean, I think the EU membership is best still, but, you know, I think that is the, the least damaging for our financial services industry, for our universities, for all kinds of other things. The trouble is, you know and I know, that Theresa May said we're going out to an EEA with a word that would instantly spring to the lips of her core constituency, who is betrayal. I also do just think that the EEA is EU membership, right? It's EU... But I mean... but it's, we I, could get an exemption on our fish like Norway. I mean, I would love... Well, I would. this, this thing is, if you're going to stay in the EEA, you're ignoring what people have voted for, so you might as well ignore what people have voted for and stay in the EU. Um, well, probably on that anti-democratic note, we should end. Helen has uh, rushed off to parts unknown, and Julia is on holiday, so it's I and Anoush for this week's Backbencher of the Week. Anoush, who is your Backbencher of the Week? It has to be Ken Clark, the Tory MP and former Chancellor and Parliament's angriest Europhile. He did a very popular um, speech in the Article 50 debate in Parliament, slamming the government and his own party. He 
mocks Theresa May for having this wonderland vision of, of where she's going to take Britain once she's taken it out of the European Union. And I think he mentioned there being a dormouse. And so he was trying to compare it to Alice in Wonderland, like an impossible world that she just dreamed up. And then he also, I think the, the most damning part of his speech was when he sort of implied that Enoch Powell would have been pleased to see the state of his party now. You're a skeptic. And he also called it anti-immigrant. And that's, I mean, that's a really big accusation against your own party. It's also a sign of the times that you can start accusing people of being anti-immigrant and it's not seen as a huge controversy for the people in charge. Maybe being anti-immigrant isn't as much of a taboo as it used to be. Yeah, which is a troubling thought. I think you're exactly right to identify that. If you look at the whole of the European right, you know, Mark Rutt with his full page ad being like, if you don't like it, leave. Yeah. And that is basically where we are heading. Exactly. I mean, I always think back to the go home vans. I know they were never actually rolled out, but do you remember, when was it? Was it 2013? or around that time. 2013 was when they had the pilot programme. Yeah. yeah, and at that time, as far as I could tell, it was a huge controversy and everyone was saying, you know, this is outrageous. How could you possibly have dreamt up a plan like this? If they brought in such a plan now, I just don't think there would be the same level of outrage or surprise, which is quite distressing. <laughs> Sorry to bring such a bleak message to your it's, listeners. It's fine. I mean, usually Backbencher... Actually, no, Backbencher of the Week is always ends up in this fairly grim place. But anyway, we'll be back next week uh, with the Dissident of the Week, maybe, the way things are going. Anyway, I'll look after yourselves and we'll see you next week. Cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. And now for a section called If You Commentate On This... Then your children will be next. Half of the people who weren't listening to last week's podcast won't get that reference, and the other half hate you. <laughs> Lots um. of, okay, at least three people sent me several suggestions for other Manic Street Preacher songs that I could do, so I think this one could run and run. Anyway, this is You Ask Us, a section in which you ask us questions. And the one that people have asked me this week is, a Nicholas Soames uh, woofed at the SMP MP Tasmina Ahmed Sheikh. Uh, I can't even remember the point that he was trying to make, but the question was whether or not this was an instance of sexism in the Commons and whether or not it was overlooked because Tasmina Ahmed Sheikh is an SMP MP. A couple of things. I think probably more than her being an SNP MP, it was overlooked because Nicholas Soames is a kind of, he's in the, you know, in the YOLO years being a Tory backbencher, right? My problem is that sexism in the comments gets traction when it's used as a way to attack people that we don't like, right? So there are some people who, like me, who will always say all sexism is bad. And then mysteriously, there are instances of sexism that are a kind of accepted because actually they're a really good way to, to knock people who don't really, you know, who, who are opposed to people who are doing the kind of knocking. So it's just, I think more more than her being an SNP MP, it's that there's it's in no one's interests to brand Nicholas Soames a sexist at this point. Yeah, I mean, so what happened with the woofing, if I recall correctly, is that she was having a go at someone. He kind of woofed, as in like you know, do it, do it, go on, do, do it. it, yeah, go on, no, 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 do the do the do like was it like an or was it like a I can't remember. I mean, it's a, t- it's a terrible place, the House of Commons. But then what happened was is that because he'd already apologised, John Burko said, "Look, you shouldn't have woofed." But because you've apologised <laughs> yeah. for the woof. I mean, I don't think you just... Gem- okay, here's, here's my, my marker where I wish I put it down. So I just think generally you shouldn't make animal noises at other adults when you're a grown person in a debating chamber. And one of my problems generally with the way Commons debates, particularly PMQs, goes is that 
If you've ever been into any school in the land, right, you are not allowed to behave like that. And it must be this really deeply disorientating experience for children to be told, you know, all the time that all these things are terrible things to do, like interrupting other people, bullying them, heck, you know, and then watch RMPs doing it. Yeah, I also think, and I'm sorry, I imagine for a lot of our listeners, I probably have said this before or you've heard it somewhere else. But as loud as the Commons looks on television in PMQs, it is so much louder in the actual chamber. One of the reasons why in his first couple of PMQs, Jeremy Corbyn had that awful shouty thing, and it was just like, why is he shouting? Is because although the mic can pick you up if you're speaking normally, from your perspective in the chamber, you feel as if you can only be heard if you're shouting, which is why he had those very ranty early performances. There is a real sense of like who's in the gang, and like, and I think there is a particular thing for new MPs when they arrive that they don't know their way around, and they f- and it feels like the first day at your new school turned up to a, a million, right? Particularly for people who've had, you know, who've worked in like a charity, say, um, you know, I was or to, a business, or basically people who just aren't aren't in. People the who cl- haven't worked in Inns of Court or haven't been a SPAD or a, a worked in Conservative or Labour Central Office. I think it, it can be very weird because it's just no other businesses kind of conduct themselves like that now. I think the problem is it was overlooked because we've accepted this weird idea and it's okay to behave like a child in in the chamber. Lots of MPs hate it. Lots of voters hate it. One of the reasons why I think it was a shame that Jeremy has abandoned his new style of PMQs is I think there was a big tactical win to be had, although obviously I'm willing to accept and seeing as I'm literally the only person in the world who thinks this, probably I'm wrong. A big tactical win by just basically saying, look, everyone hates this. We're not going to have any booing or hollering or whooping or shouting. It's not a football match. One of the things that's really interesting, though, is that they have gone, they've just completely decided that stuff it, we're going to clap people. Once the kind of clapping dam was broken, right, then actually now they just clap quite regularly. Yeah, I think it does once again show the force of will can change a lot of these things. I also think in particular, we are about to undergo, hopefully, if Trump doesn't destroy us all before then, undergo a fairly massive change in how the British economy and society works because we leave the EU. And you have a situation in which the people deciding it use these weird codes. They talk about DEXU, i.e. the Brexit department, and a brownfield land, oh, austerity, oh, article this, triggering that, my right honourable friend. There has never been a worse time for Parliament to look like this braying, coded bear pit than the massive economic change that is about to hit the country. Um, here's some more real talk I'm going to unleash in the safe space of the podcast. The lobby is a, is a huge part of this too. It is a, it is incredibly male-dominated. I think I can't remember the exact figures, but I think 75%, and certainly among senior political editors, that's even more increased, as with the typical pattern of many high-pressure workplaces where plenty of women in their 20s have a crack at it, find it incompatible with family life as they, they go on. Um, you know, I know plenty of dads actually work in the lobby who find it pretty incompatible with family life. But I re- again, reading Harriet Harman's book, um, she talks about Jackie Ashley when she wanted to come back after her having a child and was told that she, by the sergeant arms flatly, that she was not allowed to work part-time. This was not something that you could do. I mean, that was the 1980s and things have changed. The creche might be actually stealthily John Burko's kind of great legacy to his as his time as speaker. But it really, t- really brought home to me, actually, when we were talking about the refugee ban, the importance of representation. Because actually having Nadim Zahawi, a Conservative MP, saying, I don't think I'm actually going to be allowed into the United States was a real focal point for that. Having a beloved British athlete like Mo Farah, who might not be allowed into the US States, was a real focal point for that. And it's an, a, 
a very strong argument for why representation matters because there's a kind of feminist saying which is you know if you're not at the table you're on the menu and the strong thing you get throughout the Harmon book is very much that you know she had to kind of build her squad and, and, and a lot of that she had to build outside parliament because actually you know what if you're the one person if you're one of I think I can't remember five Five, five female MPs in the Labour Party when she turned up. Her maiden speech was on childcare. And then and that's not a subject that really bothers anyone else. And yeah, guess what? It's really difficult to get traction. Yeah, and I think lots of people will rightly say it's not good enough that the UK government's response to it was, oh, don't worry, we'll get an exemption for our people. However, if the Conservative Parliamentary Party was as undiverse in 2016 as it was in 1997, 1987, you know, throughout the past... We wouldn't even have that exemption. It just wouldn't be under discussion, which is why representation always matters. And actually, there is a reason why the Attlee government did lots and lots of things to end working poverty for men, but actually did not significantly change or transform the life of many working women, single mothers, etc., etc. It's because there were hardly any. There was Ellen Wilkinson, and I want to say one other, but I I may be inventing a woman, in the Attlee cabinet, right? So even left-wing governments, and we see it with mental health, health provision we see it with a whole suite of issues if you're not represented in the discussion you get one size fits all solutions even from left-wing governments so yeah representation matters good you've been listening to the new states and podcast with me stephen bush and my colleague helen lewis why not send us your suggestions for backventure of the week I'm on Twitter as at Stephen KB. She's at Helen Lewis. I'm on Facebook at www.facebook.com forward slash Stephen K. Bush. Our music is Devil by the Devil by the Underscore Orchestra, licensed by Creative Commons, and our producer is India Bork.